You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, his dark materials, episode four, Northern Lights, the Golden Compass, chapters 10 through 12. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as at Lizen Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl over on Reddit or as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Hey, what's up? Greetings. Hello, everyone. <laughs> you might know us as Girls Gone Canon, who are currently covering for the rest of our lives Jon Snow and A Song of Ice and Fire. But we also are on our fourth His Dark Material we did episode. This is like a thing that's happening we're gonna do more we are we are only on the first book we're in the thick of things you know we hit the middle we're on the next part we're not on part one this is our first episode in part two bullvanger yes and you know next thing you know we're gonna be on to the show but for now we are here on chapters 10 11 and 12 10 the console and the bear 11 armor 12, The Lost Boy. Of course, all of this is followed by our discussion, our book spoilers after section. So tune out if you don't want to know what happens after this in the Golden Compass, Northern Lights, Subtle Knife, or the Amber Spyglass when we get to this section. Yeah, we've expanded. (laughs) Fuck it. Fuck it, everyone. We'll talk about why we expanded very soon. But for now, we're in Bulvanger. Part three, of course, is Spellbard. Uh, If you're following with us so far, you know Svalbard is the iciest of the ice. It is the snowiest of the snow. It is full of bears and auroras and uh, just so much northernness. But before that, we do have some tweets of note and emails to get through. The first one comes from Logan Blizzard. Loving the HDM pods. Mind if I contribute to Animal Corner? Pullman's chameleon meaning seems to allude to Hamlet. Excellent if faith of the chameleon's dish. I eat the air. Promise crammed. Act 3, scene 2. Brilliant catch, Logan Blizzard. Uh, wow. As everyone will remember. I didn't even think oh, of that. I didn't think of that. And I'm like. You're like, who I go to? I'm like, is this Shakespeare? And you're like, yeah. I think this is a great catch. Logan Blizzard, fantastic um. catch. This is referring to last episode. Tony Cherbonnier, aka at Tony3483 says to us i just finished the amber spyglass and just want to say thank you i'm not sure if i would have ever read this series if y'all hadn't started this podcast oh my god oh. that's how i feel too tony <laughs> <laughs> but aren't you aren't you Eliana glad maybe do this. that we did this no you pick, I you're picking the though. next no, one I you can am. do that john dies at the end series that you like maybe <gasps> wait are you serious right now you just said that on a recording we can do john dies maybe at the end. eliana i think you would love it it's so silly and fun it's like scooby-doo on acid and then like has some meta in it and philosophy okay i i digress i so to give you guys an update on chloe's status because when we started doing his dark materials the goal was that we were emulating our really good friends over at davos fingers if you follow us on our song of ice and fire podcast you'll know we just had matt and scat on from davos fingers uh two episodes in a row we had each and the other on it. It was awesome. It was great. If you haven't listened to them, they are like the guys that have done it. They've gotten through the books. And I, uh, we just got done with hanging out with them. Their podcast format is that they do a read through of the books and they do have a spoiler section 
at the end that covers everything instead of just what happened in that chapter. So we are trying to live this podcast moment by moment only in the Golden Compass and Northern Lights, depending on which version you're reading. And Chloe was supposed to read only the first book to do that. But Chloe is much like Lyra in that when someone says Lyra, no, Lyra says Lyra, yes. And Eliana said Chloe, yes. <laughs> Eliana's a very bad influence. So I have caught up to the Amber Spyglass and I am at the last chapter. At the time of this recording, I have not listened to the last chapter. That could change any day now. Probably Saturday. Saturday mornings are my best reading days, but that could change. So our discussion might get a little deep, but I agree, Tony. I would... If I hadn't read The Amber Spyglass, thank you, Eliana, because if I had not read the series, I just like I'm emotionally connected. I text Eliana sometimes. I message her and I'll say, oh, my God, this thing is happening. And my heart is literally ripped on the sidewalk into it. Someone ran over it with like a, a monster truck or like a grenade or like bombs. And I don't know what's happening to it, but it's getting hurt. And I'm hurt. I love this series a lot. And now we have this like shared language. Now I can tell you, York Bernison. In the town, a.k.a. the polar bear loose in Belfast and Dairy Girls. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, when you texted me that or messaged me that, that was, I said it, I showed it to Emmett really quick, but I, uh, Dairy Girls is really good. I'm too, that was HDM. I'm two episodes behind, but uh, my partner's already finished all two seasons. We just started it last week. That's how yeah. we were. It was very it fast was. and very good. Oh, I think a good use of mute. Oh, 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 just like <laughs> Eoric Bernison. Oh, <laughs> our friend Jake sent us a tweet. Not to be confused with Jaharis slash Jake, my cat. At Jake Baker says tweeted us and said, "My face when y'all were gonna start doing his dark material episodes more frequently." Same big mood. Yes, we are. We are so excited about doing these more. Uh, if you guys were here around in the last week, week and a half, we released. Episode three, we're doing episode four right now that you're listening to, and episode five will be out soon. We're we're like pummeling towards the end. We're already gonna be halfway through Bullvanger by the next time we record. I'm excited, but we're also talking about something exciting. His Dark Materials patron episode sometime in the future. Eliana, have you heard rumors about this? Um, I I don't know if I've heard rumors. I think I vaguely read it in the. In my alethiometer, perhaps. Mm, I, mm. I'm not sure. Couldn't read well, it that clearly. I'm not yeah, chosen. We are not <laughs> innocent. I mean, chosen. Uh, we're, you know, my alethiometer had some hands pointing to uh, a couple different things. Like there was a cornucopia and then it pointed to a month and then October, maybe. So if you're a... Uh, if you're a plan and sort, just know that maybe in October you might get a surprise and it might be about his dark materials and it might involve wine. It might. It might. <laughs> Lyra and Roger. <laughs> do adults actually like this? Yes, and so do I. Us. <laughs> Us. In the last moment, we got this great email from our friend Julie R. It's such like a... We always get these emails last second, oh, no. right before we record. Someone sends us an amazing email. Well, yeah, really every good. week. You guys are good. You guys know that we are like late at night, pushing the midnight oil. That one wasn't talking about ambaric oil. It's just kidding. There's no oil. That one wasn't like last 
during the night though. That one was in like I don't know. They just knew and they got it in, and it was truly. Oh, man, there's like a lot we want to talk about for this one, but we're going to just read it aloud now and tease everyone that we will come back to this. So it, Julie says, I wanted to say I love his dark materials. I listen to them on Audible because I can't read. Big yeah, dude. The audiobook is really great because they have a full cast reading the parts and Philip Pullman narrates. Oh, that is pretty great. The reason for my email is I've also been listening to The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice and in the third book, The Queen of the Damned. In this book... The origin of the vampire is revealed. It goes back to pre-Egyptian era when there's a religious-slash-cultural change. The history is being told by a character, Maharit, who is a witch-slash-magi with her twin sister. They are interrupted from their mother's funeral, where they were interrupted from consuming their mother's brain and heart, to be brought to see the queen and king. The queen outlawed cannibalistic funeral and enforced mummification, as Eliana has brought up cannibalism in a few podcasts. I thought I'd share <laughs> That there's some in-depth discussion of cannibalism as a funeral rite in this series. Makes sense as it's a vampire series. Yeah, that's true. Thanks for all of your hard work and fun discussion. I love that GGC is diving into other works as well. GGC, that's us. Sometimes we refer to ourselves as that in message. We're going to come back to this. Uh, probably in the Amber Spyglass. Yeah. Or in the Subtle Knife in some of our uh, discussions then. Those will get limited as we go, for sure. But yeah. There's a lot to talk about. This is something interesting. Thank you, Julie, for this. And Julie was at Ice and FireCon with us. Yes. And I know that we, like, have seen each other and almost hung out-ish, so hopefully next year we'll get to hang out more. Yeah. I'm excited for Ice and FireCon next year. I already have some fun ideas. and I know. And We'll start chapter 10 now. The Consul and the Bear. This is an exciting chapter. It is the beginning of our first Bulvanger chapter, and they only get crazier from here. The Egyptian faction makes for Trollasun, which is the main port of Lapland. The witches have a consulate in town, and they need the witches' help to save the children. So there actually is a Trollasund in Sweden, believe it or not. It's a manor. At one point, it was an orphanage for Finnish children during what's called the Continuation War. Commonly in 1942 to 1945, it was fought by Finland in Nazi Germany against the USSR, and if you don't know, a uh, spoiler alert to history, Finland was kind of like hardcore. The owner of Trollison named himself Trollowen, and the family actually still has the property in that name. Like to this day, according to some of these Swedish and Nordic families, there's a book on it. I need to dig through a library for this. I couldn't find it anywhere online to buy, but it's how a peasant village becomes a manor. And it makes me wonder if Pullman is drawing from some of this Nordic ancestry because it's it's measly as a connection, but I like to dig to find this stuff, and especially that orphanage for Finnish children during this war fought by Finland and Nazi Germany. Uh, it makes me wonder with this what we're about to f- discover in the next few chapters. D- you know? Discover. <laughs> discover. Yes. Oh. 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 Fire. Yes. Oh, damn. <laughs> for <laughs> sure. And I mean, like, I think there's that. He's definitely inspired by a bunch of those things, like the name Lapland. I, my understanding is it's actually a real place in Finland, but here Lapland is standing in for what might be all of maybe Finland in in yeah. this world, and apparently at Lap- Lapland in our world, at the city, you can start seeing like the Rorer, and it's the gateway to the region. Yeah, so. He's definitely pulling from the real world, and I think that 
you might be like onto something there even if it's like small obviously people are inspired by things and they draw those into like their works you think of nazi germany is hanging out with finland saying oh come on finland we're also the good guys like we're taking children and experimenting on them we're taking people and experimenting it's like oh gathering these children in Trollosan, the orphanage for refugees and these children are refugees from life right these are the kids we know right now that are being taken by gobblers are like a lot of different characters we're about to meet but you know these kids are disappearing they're not really people of note in society but we know who they are. Lyra knows who they yeah. are. They're they're just kids. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I think Pullman's definitely pulling out a lot of those ideas. He's Pullman. Oh. He's gonna be so mad if he ever hears that. I hope he's, still <laughs> he's a gonna fire us for our podcast. We're he's gonna worst. fire us. My God. There's a lot of stuff that sometimes I think and say on this podcast, and I'm like, mm, Philip doesn't need that. But maybe he does. I don't know. It's just like Lyra, though. She doesn't need this seasickness, and it's starting to fade. <laughs> Pan is now a seagull against the sky and water, uh-huh. and he's skimming the waves, and Lyra's paying attention to him instead of all the leaders, talking about their plans. I love this. <laughs> this is like, I'm so excited. Do you know how excited I am for this chapter? Oh, she's so excited. She she only is going to get more excited from here on out. <laughs> for example, one of the things that excites Chloe is hearing about how Farger Cora saved a witch's life 40 years back, so the witches owe him a favor. The witch had fallen after being chased by a great red bird, and he helped nurse her back to health after pulling her from the marsh uh, when he like shot the bird down. And I think this idea of favors and debts and duty, we're going to see how that comes through in a couple of different ways throughout these next few chapters as we meet Yorick, but also with Lyra throughout the rest of the story. It really builds here. The first book is intense, but then you get to a whole new level of intense, so... It, it's interesting that this is the foundation of these characters. Yeah. This is what we know for the beginning. He really hammers it yeah. home that this is their character. This is who Farter Coram is. This is who Lyra is. These are the witches. It gives you this foundation to launch off of, and everything he does enriches it from there. Because then we get this story about him and the witches, right? We get he had pulled this random faceless witch that we know nothing about aboard. Mm-hmm. But she had no demon. And all of the other men had treated this with shock. Like like he had said that she had no head. It's like crazy to have no demon to them. Because yeah. they're from this world of demons. And he figured at that time with no demon, she had to have been a witch. Maybe it was because of her beauty or her grace or her flying on a, a, a pine cone. Just kidding, it wasn't a pine cone. But if anyone's flying in the air, I'm probably going to be like, yeah, that's a witch. <laughs> yeah. But either way, it concerned him that, you know, she had no demon. And Adam Stefanski pipes in. He's like, their demons are probably transparent because they're witches. It's not true. But I like the idea. I mean, it's true of some places. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But not here. No. No. (laughs) So Coram tells them that they're able to separate farther from their demons, which is a very new revelation to all of us. Going along for this very first time ever in his dark materials, including me, Coram says that the demon of the witch came back within an hour, knowing that the witch had been injured, and she never admitted it, but Coram thinks that that bird that he shot was actually another witch's demon. Can you imagine that guilt? Yeah, and it haunting him and him never, like, really knowing, but is it... 
is it mercy on the witch's part to not tell him? Or cruel? There's a couple other parts in this book where witches have some revenge vendettas, so... Yeah, that's true. I really am curious about what that was about. I, mm-hmm. I You're reading La Belle Sauvage right now, yeah. right? You're, you're reading that, so... I don't know if you're going to find anything out. I hope you do. I hope there's some secret inkling because this is an interesting spigot of knowledge that we never get any sort of, I don't know, no confirmation of what it meant in the end end, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't think I remember us seeing anything about that. Maybe it is in La Belle Sauvage. I don't know. But there's other, there is other stuff, like, as you were saying about in some other materials, like of witches and, and revenge, especially like playing in with that separation of their demons and i think that we've seen that a lot of witches have different kinds of birds right as their demons so i don't think Corm is wrong to think well it's a bird and it's doing something weird maybe it's a demon of a witch yeah uh so i think that makes sense the the witch like had also sent him help this witch when he was shot by a scrailing with a poison arrow and now Lyra is like I want to know more about witches but the men are like eh, let's talk about who is fuel. she yeah who is she but could are we talking about are we talking about that or are we talking about the birds think big questions who is maybe she? that's why people made that meme with the pigeon on the red carpet and saying who is she like because you're talking about who is that demon. <laughs> So Lyra is obviously exploring the witchdom, and the men on the deck are all talking about fuel and boring stores, and she's like, this is so boring. She's walking around the ship, and not to a-swaff it, for those of you that listened to our uh, first podcast, our firstborn, Song of Ice and Fire, this is very Arya Stark in Bravos to me. She's like making friends on the boat. She's being rowdy with the seamen that are working. She's cussing with them. <laughs> what are you doing? She's like, doing? I'm one of the boys. Right? <gasps> There's this guy, Jerry. He's a, a seaman that she's talking with. Yeah, and he teaches her that distraction with chores will fix her stomach because she keeps getting sick on deck. And if she does them in a seaman way, then she'll always be distracted. So now everything she does is in that way. She's like, I'm not tidying my room. I'm stowing it. And after two days of this, she's like, this is my life now. I live at sea. Yeah. And she's like, this is what I'm meant to do forever. And I'm like, this is the most Lyra move ever. But that's the thing is, this is like every chapter she does this, right? This is how it is as a kid. First off, when you're a kid, you're like, I'm just going to change and I'm this now. And later in this chapter, like she's always trying to be something else. Later, she's out there and she's like, hanging out, doing different things, and her demon, Pan, Panalaman, he's changing too. And I wonder if that's a correlation, right? Pan will settle when she settles, as we learn in a couple chapters here in this episode. And she's lost also between that and complete inner self because of Marisa and Asriel, Coulter and Asriel, right? Yeah, for a long time she like keeps thinking that she's like Asriel, especially as she realizes that she's Asriel's daughter. And then uh, we'll, we'll see how that changes. And I Again, like, I think this is something we brought up last episode that has to do a lot with what growing up is, as you realize, you know, you try on a lot of different personalities to figure out who you are, and you're like, "Mm." until you become your mother. Or, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just say. But, like, you you try on a lot of different personalities until you, like, find one, and you're like, yeah, maybe this works, this fits, so... It grows colder every day, and Lyra, along with learning how to stow instead of tidy, learns to sew 
from Jerry. She learns to make a waterproof bag for the alethiometer and finds her seal skins to wear. It turns out, like, Lyra actually likes learning because before she didn't want to learn how to sew uh, when she was at Jordan College. I think she just wanted to know how to put it to use. It needed to be interesting for her, especially because she hates, like, sitting around, clearly. She's trying to, like, run on the rooftop. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, with Roger. Maybe all. Oh. Lyra's getting seasick, but she's like, Pan, be a bird and distract me. So he even ends up changing into a fish and swimming as a dolphin at one point. But she has to stay on deck with him. Being apart from him hurts too much. And I want to pull us into our first animal corner about the dolphin. For Lyra, it doesn't really represent the freedom you think it would. Right? Like, you you immediately associate freedom with dolphins, right? It's just a normal feeling. They're just free. They're leaping on water. But dolphins are really diplomats of the Hmm. sea. They're ambassadors between land and water. Even if dolphins seem carefree, it's likely that dolphins are wrestling with responsibilities, but also heavy choices. There are a lot of instances in common history of them going out of their way to save From sharks? And... Yes, absolutely, from sharks and other dangers in the water. The dolphin shows this sense of morality, like an innate goodwill and inherent goodness that shines through. And I I think it's important with Pan, because I feel like Pan reflects the good parts of Lyra and her soul. Always. I feel like he is always the angel on her shoulder saying, Lyra, no, don't do it. Don't give in to... Shakes head around, looks into camera. Sin. And then Lyra's like, Lyra, yes! As you said. (laughs) Lyra, no. Lyra, yes. (laughs) She's like, fuck. Uh, She worries, though, that, like, oh, God, what if this is Pan's final form? Like, is it going to be something that has to be in the water? And then she's like, what would I do then? Lyra, I mean, I thought you were going to be a sea man. This is what it means. Jerry comforts her, though, because his own demon, a seagull, is nearby. He tells her about a sailor that he knew who could actually never leave the water because his demon had settled into a dolphin. (laughs) Lara asks why demons have to settle and he tells her it's a part of growing up and that someday she will want a settled form too and she says no never I'm never gonna do that I'm never gonna grow up (laughs) Jerry says it's actually nice sometimes when it settles because then you'll know what kind of person you are like because of my seagull I know I'm tough and a survival uh, and a survivor Yeah. yeah Jerry comes out with the whole entire animal corner. He is a survivalist. He's tough, like you said. There's plenty of folk as would like to have a lion as a demon, and they end up with a poodle until they learn to be satisfied with what they are. They're going to be fretful about it. Waste of feeling, that is. But it didn't seem to Lyra that she would ever grow up. Big mood, like me either, sister, but here we are, grown up. Yep, like the Rugrats, all grown up. Lyra wakes up another morning to a new smell, a strange one really, and the ship is moving differently. Everything is smelling of the north. Fish, pine resin, earth, musk, snow. Is this Captain Pearl? Uh, Or is this like around the ship? Also sounds like a candle store. (laughs) Yeah. Seals are frisking around the ship. The wind is cold and daunting. Pan is trying to warm her in his airmine form, but it's no use. She goes back inside and she eats her porridge. Good for you. Yeah, Farter Quartermaster, is everything packed? 
for when we leave the boat, and she has everything packed. So then they go to visit the witch console, and the witch console is a green painted wooden house with a bell at the front and a man named Martin Lincellius. He's the consul, and he greets them once a servant invites them in. His demon is a serpent and has the same green eyes that he has, and look, animal corner style. I don't talk about serpents because usually they're very self-serving. Serp. Serp. Serping. Serp. 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 I don't know. I do want to comment that Serpents aren't always bad. They don't always mean inherent evil. But I love this line from Matthew ten sixteen. Jesus exhorted them. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That has some resonance, especially in the next couple of chapters, because we do talk about wolves as demons uh, with the Tartars. We'll get to that. For sure. And I think that a, first of all, regarding serpents not all being bad, Lita Lestrange, an example. She was yeah. great, the best. Also, Chloe. Chloe, Chloe. also. She's a great Chloe's Slytherin. Chloe's a great Slytherin. Thank also, you. I mean, it's a story that is, in many ways, glorifying, right? The fall. And we'll talk about other characters who play serpent roles at some point, and that's portrayed very positively. Yeah, he's very much being a tempter here. Like, oh, now that you say that, I think about yeah. it. He is tempting. He's tempting with knowledge. Mm. This is something that Lyra hasn't had, and Farder Coram also is interested in it. And Martin is about to tell them a lot, because Farder Coram tells him immediately that he's looking for a witch by the name of Serafina Kikala. Pew, 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 Kikala. Do you know how excited I've been about this movie? I, I think, so everyone in this document, Chloe has made this text enormous. It is bolded <laughs> in all caps. She's incredibly jazzed that we're finally talking about Serafina. I don't even know what's going to happen, like, later on. I mean, you do. I, I do. But <laughs> I do. Carter Coram starts to talk about last time he saw Serafina Picala, and he tells the man that he's representing the Egyptians and their lost children, hoping to obtain some answers, right? And Martin says, look, I may have knowledge, but I don't want to disrupt the Northerners' lives. So he's kind of playing this game, right? He's like, I have knowledge, I could tell you, but... Mm. 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 Oh, and Fartacorm's like, that's why I asked about the witch first. And Martin's like, okay, I understand. And says that, you know, Coram is not a known to the witches, and he says that Serafina is a queen of a witch clan in the region of Lake Anara, and then tells him information that wink wink didn't come from me. Uh, uh, some secret info. Secrets. And I mean, this kind of happens to Farter Quorum a lot, people telling him things that they're like, you didn't get this from me. This happens a lot in some other stuff. <sighs> Oh, like LaBelle? LaBelle Sauvage. Sorry, everyone. I'm in the middle of it, okay? I'm, and I'm like, it's technically a prequel. I can't It's technically wait. a prequel. I'm, so I'm not. Sa- I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything that is spoilery because I'm like, it's a prequel no, no. and I'm not saying anything plot, you know? I'm excited to read it because it's like the Marauders J.K. Rowling wouldn't oh my give God. us. I said what I said. I do like Newt, but there's a lot of things that I didn't I like about the second movie. Oh, Fantastic Two sucked. It could suck. I like the first my, one. My everything. Was, 
The first was great. Everything yeah, after that first horrible, was like horrible. wholesome and shit. But anyways, sorry. Lancelius explains there's an organization called the Northern Progress Exploration Company in their town, but they're all fakes and they're actually run by the General Ablation Board. Interesting how systems are poisoned. Um, I thought that was crazy because you do, you don't think about it. When you get Lyra with Coulter at the Arctic Reservation site, when you get her there and like hanging out and having fancy meals and learning about stuff and seeing fancy people, you get that sense of money being gathered mm-hmm. there. You know what I mean? Like, and this right here, this reveal, this like revelation that, oh, the Northern Progress Exploration Company that's in town that's so esteemed and prestigious. Yeah, they're gob. 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 Oh my gob. Oh Job. my gob. Oh my gob. <laughs> Uh, isn't that from like Adventure Time? And um, it is, but it's also from Arrested. Yes, oh, I was thinking Joe was, and I actually have that. Joe, I do have that later on in a note. I'm just gonna say now that every time I do see the GOB, I just think of Joe from Job. fucking Arrested Development. Joe would be fucking part of the Gobblers. Let's be real. That's our like household joke. Honestly, oh, our Joe, our household. Oh wow, Job. wow. So Martin knows about child trafficking going on in the city but he says the government doesn't i don't believe that's a lie the Uh, (laughs) the government is literally like they live in kind of a theocracy yeah like more like they do they just turn a blind eye to it because that's how power systems work and that's what we're hearing we're hearing about all these people with all this money and power that are like oh i gotta rub this guy's back because he rubbed my back and uh sorry poor people oh fuck yeah and martin's like yeah we didn't really investigate we don't know where the kids are taken after they arrive here and Quorum asks, well, do you know what happened to them? And then Martin looks at Lyra before answering, saying, you know, I've heard the term Maystad process and also intercision, but all those are to avoid calling it by its real name. He says that l- the last group of children arrived a week ago. They left the day before last, leaving by sledge. And uh, we actually have no clue where they're going. Yeah, Farter Quorum asks the question, Farter Quorum asks what question Martin would ask of the consul if, you know, he was Farter Quorum. And Martin Lancelius answers, I would ask where to obtain the service of an armored bear. Pew, pew, pew. Armored bear. Armored bear. So armored bear. Quorum argues. He's like, the bears are all under the general ablation board. There's no way. And Martin's like, there's one at the sledge depot still. Yorick. It's definitely like a bear. Yeah, it's like really close. I'm like, okay. I love it. I love it. I I don't have any problems with it. He then asks to look at Lyra's alethiometer and she shows it to him, but before she can interrupt with any details about reading it, Corm's like, oh, oh, it's too bad. It's just too bad that there's no means of reading it. Like, it's it's a mystery to us. Like, the ink that the Hindus use for reading the future? Yeah, it's just not a real thing. Haha, ha, wink, wink, ha, ha sweating. Ah, yeah. Snowden. <laughs> Snowden. You know, I, I was, maybe I was looking in the wrong place. I didn't find a lot about this. You know me, I like to like get deep and find something fun and new. But I did find some divination by ink methods from 19th century European culture called encromancy, where ink stains basically spill on paper, almost like Rorschach tests, right? Hmm. Hinduism-wise, I wonder if maybe it is real and I'm just missing that exactly. I mean, there's some henna stuff, but I don't know. 
I found the right stuff. So, but Anchromancy is interesting, and I like that it's called Anchromancy. I think that's something. I think it's interesting that it's called, or that you liken it to Rorschach tests. There's a line in La Belle Sauvage. Sorry, everyone! Not sorry. Where they're talking about how the best alethiometer readers are, like, those who aren't too imaginative with it, because there are, like, those set meetings for some of them, even though I disagree with some of them. Because they're like, I don't know, because if you're too imaginative with reading uh, some of the symbols, you can make it say anything you fucking want. Right. I've never heard of such a person doing anything like that. Yeah. No, that was a joke. I've seen a lot of people. Maybe it's about projecting, but that's... Yeah. That's interesting to think on. Yeah. Hmm. I have to read this goddamn stupid book. Yeah, same. I'm not... I'm only like... 60 pages into it, which is hardly anything. Imagine if I finished the main series and then read LaBelle. I know, right? I'd be dangerous. You would. <laughs> you would be also a savage beauty. Or, not that you're not right now. Now you're just a tamed beauty. Okay, alright, alright. Lyra is watching the serpent demon, and it's obvious that they could sense the deceit. So she interrupts, saying that actually, I can read it. And she, like, asks to know more about it, and I think this plays a little into what you were saying, Chloe, about Lincelius and the serpent and wisdom, because now he's, like, urging them towards that and providing a lot of that. Lincelius says that the alethiometers originated in Prague, and the and says, The scholar who invented the first alethiometer was apparently trying to find a way of measuring the influences of the planets, according to the ideas of astrology. He intended to make a device that would respond to the idea of Mars or Venus as a compass responds to the idea of North. Huh. In that he failed, but the mechanism he invented was clearly responding to something, even if no one knew what it was. And where did they get the symbols from? Oh, this was in the 17th century. Symbols and emblems were everywhere. Buildings and pictures were designed to be read like books. Everything stood for something else. If you had the right dictionary, you could read nature itself. It was hardly surprising to find philosophers using the symbolism of their time to interpret knowledge that came from a mysterious source. But you know, they haven't been used seriously for two centuries or so. Hmm. 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 Hmm, this this plays into a little of what we were saying just now about like you know fixed meanings and don't be too imaginative, be a little imaginative, but not too much. But I think what we said in the previous episode, we were talking a little bit about where Pullman got some of these symbols, and I think he said he got them same as this, like looking at old texts and just was kind of inspired. And you know what I have to say is, give us the knights on snails <laughs> from medieval manuscripts. I don't even know what they're about, but they're the best. I love they're them. Cute. Lancelius asks if he can see Lyra use the alethiometer, and he then tells her what to ask. She moves the hands to the camel, which means Asia, and then Tartars, the cornucopia, which means Kamchatka, with gold mines, and then to the ant, which means activity, then purpose, and then intention. The needle responds by trembling on dolphin, helmet, baby, and anchor, and Lyra tells them, They're going to pretend to attack it, but they're not going to because it's too far away and they'd be too stretched out. She then explains how she figured it out and he tells her he's grateful and he won't forget that. He then asks for one more demonstration. He wants Lyra to figure out which of the sprays of cloud pine, which most of you might know is like a 
very skinny branch of twigs that witches would ride on. Out of 40 other brooms is Serafina Picala's. So he basically says, Lyra, go figure out which is Serafina Picala's broomstick. She figures it out on her very first try and runs around in the snow, waving it around and pretending to be a witch. She's like slipping into another skin here, right? Like Pan does mm-hmm. all the time. She's Egyptian, a seaman, a witch, later even almost a bear. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's such a good point of how she's changing her shape in a way as much as Pan is. Yeah. It's it's also kind of like adorable and hilarious to watch. <laughs> uh, we love our daughter. Yes. She, we've adopted her. Her parents didn't deserve her. True. We Holy care for shit. her now. I know. <gasps> Oh, the counts, the consul then asks Quorum, do you know who this child is? And Quorum's like, uh, she's Asriel's and Coulter's daughter. And the consul then pushes further. He says that, you know, she's an innocent and then talks of her alethiometer reading abilities and how it comes from a lot of that innocence. But the consul says that the witches have spoken of her for centuries, hearing immortal whispers from the veil between worlds. I can just imagine, like, I don't know what our things just gossiping like oh have you heard about this kid today yeah absolutely i don't know (laughs) and their life in all the worlds depends upon her and her fulfilling her destiny and he says that she must fulfill her destiny in ignorance of what she is doing because only in her ignorance can they all be saved crim's like i don't fucking get that that makes no sense But before uh, he can answer, Lyra bursts in, saying, I tested the pines! They don't fly for me! But it's this one. Lansalius is very impressed. He gives her a twig, broken off from the spray of pine, and he says, I can't give you all of this. I must use it to contact Serafina. Carter Corum then, this is a great passage, and I have to point this out because I'm sad all the time. <gasps> Carter Corum touched the spray of pine as if for luck. And on his face was an expression Lyra had never seen before. Almost a longing. I have a lot to talk about there in the discussion. We'll get to it. But first, the consul wishes Lyra success and watches them leave. Lyra tells Coram that the consul knew the answer about the Tartars, and Coram says he was testing her. He says the bear was a useful tip, and they head to the depot. A man at the depot tells them the bear is off duty at six if they catch him before he goes to get drunk. Coram gets Lyra fit in some warm sealskin clothing, a parka made of reindeer skin, and wolverine fur. And I feel like this is an abomination for all demons, truly. It's very weird. Oh, like the wearing of other skins? Yeah, can't do that shit. Maybe, I don't know, because apparently like if animals saw a demon, they wouldn't see an animal. Yeah. Like them, they would see a human. And I think the meaning behind that is vague. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I'm going to throw it out there based on Pullman not necessarily knowing uh, what it meant when he had a, that guy with a demon who is the same sex as him. I'm not sure if Pullman knows what that means. I think it's deliberately like, yeah. ooh, spooky. I mean, the next passage is like talking about how his boots and mittens are made of reindeer foreleg skin and how it's tougher. Yeah. Then other skin would just to me is like, hmm, interesting. Reindeer foreleg skin? Yeah. I mean, like that can't eat can't eat polar bear livers. We're learning a lot here. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can make a cloak out of seal intestine to polish off the entire look, apparently. 
Oh man. Yeah, she she probably has to look really chubby in this. You know what I mean? Like a little bear. She must look like a roly poly or like a furry roly poly. Yeah, she asks uh, if he's ever spoken to a bear before. And Horam is like, I've never actually fought one by myself before. Not by myself, thank God, is what he says. And I'm interested to see who fought the bears with him. Hmm. 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 Interesting. <laughs> they head back to the ship where John Fa receives their news of the bear and he thinks, oh, I don't know, a bear will be surly and difficult to manage, but we have to have him. And then he asks about, so you're which, Fredericorum? But he doesn't seem positive, like, I don't know, she's in a, she's a clan queen now, she's got her own life, and she's far off. And Fredericorum thinks also, like, a reply will be, I don't know, too long coming. It'll take too long for her to get there. Yeah, John then updates them on what he's found in this time, which is a man from the country, quote-unquote, of Texas. Which is great. He's an aeronaut, and he has a balloon. He's come to steal your girl, Horam, Mr. Steal Your Girl. Who said that? Maybe. Who said that? You said that. I didn't say that. (laughs) Eliana, who is it? Who is he? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find out. We're going to find out soon. JK, everyone, I assume you've read these three chapters. Whatever. His expedition failed, and he did sign up with John Fa to come on this one, hoping for more riches and golds. Once the stores have been unloaded, Farter, Coram, and Lyra look for the Einerson's Bar, which is where they can find Eoric Bernison. And they find it, and they find Eoric. He's hunched over, gnawing at a haunch of meat with a bloodstained muzzle and face. Yorick Bernison, said Farder Corbigan. May I speak to you? Lyra feels danger because the bear feels like a cold, dangerous power. He's not like a human. He has no demon. And then Lyra just feels pity for him because he seems very truly alone. He's slumped over the gate and he's putting down his reindeer leg. Is he eating it like a fucking turkey leg or something? Yeah, dude, like from Renfair. (laughs) I know. Yorick Renfair times a thousand. (laughs) When he stands, he's ten feet tall and menacing, and he's, like, asking them, what do you want? And they offer him a job! Employment! Mending. But he's like, I got a job! I'm mending broken machinery and iron! Corm's like, that's no kind of work for a Panzerbjorn. Oh, I love that, because they are a people, right? And he's separated from his people. He is, and that makes him sad. And the bartender then checks in on Yorick and his visitors, but says nothing more when Yorick lurches toward him. Uh, it's interesting he's not cut off, because Yorick then just drinks some more booze and goes back to eating for a second. Big mood. He he asks what work they have to offer him, and it's fighting and bringing back captive children. A good job! Right? That's, uh, that's a good work. And he offers him gold, but Yorick's like, I don't want that. I already have my keep and food paid for Horum's like, why do you work in Trollison at Anderson's Bar when you could live in a solitary life of seals and walrus, or you could go to war and win great treasure? And Eorik tells him he knows what he seeks. You seek the child cutters. No one stops them in town as they pretend not to see. They bring good business, says. Now, I don't like the child cutters, so I shall answer you politely. I stay here and drink spirits because the men here took my armor away. And without that, I can hunt seals, but I can't go to war. 
and I am an armored bear. War is the sea I swim in and the air I breathe. The men of this town gave me spirits and let me drink till I was asleep, and then they took my armor away from me. Roar! If I knew where they keep it, I would tear down town to get it back. If you want my service, the price is this. Get me back my armor. Do that, and I shall serve you in your campaign, either until I am dead or until you have a victory. The price is my armor. I want it back, and then I shall never need spirits again. Roar! <laughs> Did you add I'm throwing in a few roar roars? I'm throwing in a few roars. <laughs> it seems like the bear-like thing to do. You know, why not? I like your roar. I really do. Thank you, my roarer. Your roarer. <sighs> so what a badass last line to go out on. The price is my armor. I want it back, and then I shall never need spirits again. He's like, I will quit alcohol if you get me my armor. Yeah. That's a big move. I mean, it really is. Uh... Mm. It's big. I mean, I guess he was just bored. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, the bears don't usually, I guess, drink. Yeah. I don't usually see bears drink So in my own life. I'm going to move this up to now. I was going to do it later. But mm. is Eoric just the Sandor Clegane of this story? <laughs> I mean, kinda, in some ways. He's just looking for his soul. He is, and he's uh, protecting Lyra. Let's move on to chapter 11, which is also very much about Eoric in a few ways. Armor. Armor. Quickly, Lyra determines where the armor is through the alethiometer. Alone, Lyra once more pities Yorick, especially his own loneliness, because he doesn't have a demon and also he has no friends. She falls asleep, dreaming of Azrael's imprisonment, when she suddenly wakes up with an urge to go wear her new furs and go outside. And the Aurora, as Pan, like, kind of refers to it because Pan says it properly, fills Excuse the night me? sky. It's Excuse. actually Roarer. Excuse. <laughs> the Roarer. <laughs> as a, as a Pansierborn, I feel like you should know that. Yeah, uh, that's true. I do love this passage that you pointed out, though. The sight filled the northern sky. The immensity of it was scarcely conceivable. As if from heaven itself, great curtains of delicate light hung and trembled, pale green and rose pink and as transparent as the most fragile fabric, and at the bottom edge a profound and fiery crimson, like the fires of hell. They swung and shimmered loosely with more grace than the most skillful dancer. Lyra thought she could even hear them, a vast, distant, whispering swish. In the evanescent delicacy she felt something as profound as she'd felt close to the bear. She was moved by it, it was so beautiful, it was almost holy. She felt tears prick her eyes, and the tears splintered the light even further into prismatic rainbows. Damn, Philip! No, it was so good. There was no way like I couldn't include yeah, it. Yeah, no way. It was really good. and uh, There's so much to like in just the way that's written, but I just wanted to point out briefly... Instead, that I like that it's the roarer is at once described as both heavenly and then hellish. Yeah, uh, it shows that duality so well. Mm-hmm. That it can be the same thing. Lyra falls into a similar state uh, 
looking at the roarer as she does when she looks at the alethiometer, and through that ends up seeing the city on the other side, and then she sees something flying across that isn't part of the aurora, and it's not part of the city. Wait, hold on. It's from here. <laughs> from this place. It's a, it's a burb. It's a plane. It's, it's actually just a burb, but kind of. It's Serafina Picala's demon, which is a goose, which is named Kaiza. Wings out, bitches. Wings out for Kaiza. Wings out, wings out, wings out, wings <laughs> out. Uh, We're flapping our arms yeah, here. Yeah, we are. Look, <laughs> well, Animal actually, Corner is happening right now. It's Kaiza, and Kaiza is a snow goose. What I mean is she's a pure white, snowy goose. And the goose totem is really interesting, you guys. It's a leadership role, but it represents messengers of change. Uh, It's valor. It's devotion. It's loyalty. It's inspiring. It means the universe has asked this person to protect what's important to them. And it's charged them with making sure that what they're trying to protect is worth protecting. And of course, there's that flock mentality involved, right? Where the goose helps to help its injured members of its flock, which we might actually see some of later. Yeah, I I have an actually serious question, and I didn't really look into this. Um, I was just inspired by what you wrote. Is she like a mother goose? You know how there's like mother goose and her rhymes or something? Yeah, and you see like that negative version in Mother Gotha with Rapunzel, but I think it's a positive mother goose. I think it's a a witch goose. Huh, interesting. I didn't know that geese meant all these things. I just thought that they were like goofy. I know, right? You know? That's great. Lyra fetches John Faw and Farder Corum to come back, and through that we also learn that witches and their demons don't in fact feel cold uh, while they're out there, and Corum is proud to see Kaiza once more, who sends greetings from Serafina. And Kaiza wants to know, so, like, is this the child of prophecy? Have you come here to make war? Just gonna say all these things right here, right now, I, I'm a <laughs> goose, showing up. Um, so you've come, and they say, we've come to help save the children, and they've inform him that they are actually hoping that the witches will help. Yeah, I hope. Uh, (laughs) I know, right? But some of the witches, turns out, are actually helping the gobblers. No! And the gobblers are, in fact, chasing dust. And then Kaisa explains dust a little bit. It comes from the sky. Some say it's always been there. Some say it's newly falling. What is certain is that when people become aware of it, a great fear comes over them, and they'll stop at nothing to discover what it is. But it is not of any concern to witches. Like, nothing's of concern to witches, I feel like. Yeah, they're like, I don't care about this until they're like, hmm, maybe we should have started caring about this a while ago. I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, the Dust Hunters are at Bolvingar, four days northeast, apparently. And they're in buildings of metal and concrete, and a lot of the animals are actually afraid of it because the air around it has hatred and fear. And then Kaisa has some really great info. He shares about how there are unpracticed charters defending it. And then Lyra, Lyra's very excited. She has a, she has a question she really wants to ask. Kaisa's like, all right, ask it. <laughs> This one question then launches into an even bigger info dump than what Kaiza has been giving us already, because Lyra likes to ask why a lot, as children do. Why do the witches talk about me? She said. Because of your father and his knowledge of the other worlds, the demon replied. That surprised all three of them. Lyra looked at Fartercorum, 
who looked back in mild wonder, and at John Fa, whose expression was troubled. Yeah, apparently I guess they're reacting to the idea of the other worlds here. Uh, because here's a number of things that come out during Kaiser's info dump. Other worlds does not mean the world of spirits, right? And the witches actually know about all these other worlds. They all overlap with one another, they're different universes, and you can't see or touch them except in the northern lights because the aurora's charge makes the world's barriers thin. Dust hunters fear it, and that's why they're imprisoning Azrael because they fear that Azrael's making a bridge between the worlds, and Kaiser confirms, yeah, that's Azrael's goal, so it's a good thing, actually, that Lyra asks all these questions, or else we wouldn't have all this information about the plot. Yeah, and all these witches aren't United, as we're learning, Seraphina's clan hasn't chosen a side, and a bunch of witches have chosen a side, and not the side you and I are on, my friend. Oh. Uh, the bears are also on the side of whoever pays them. There's not just one Eoric Burnison, you guys. There's a lot of them. And now the new bear king is trying to do some pretty weird shit. And overall, they're imprisoning Asriel. And then Lyra goes, hashtag not all bears, more or less literally. <laughs> she literally says, but not all bears. And she's intent on getting this outcast lonely bear to join their gang. And everyone's like, I don't know if that's happening. I don't know if we can do that and if he wants to join us. <laughs> and Corm explains, yeah, Yorick is an indentured servant at the moment, serving a sentence. And Lyra's like, no, that's not what it is. The villagers lied. I know this because the alethiometer told me so. They got him drunk and they stole his armor. This is the saddest. Like, I am so mad and sad for Yorick. And... Apparently when that happened, he went on a rampage and he killed two men. And they don't kill him because they want him to do metal work for them. And Lyra has this bit in this passage. Like a slave, Lyra said hotly. They hadn't got the right! Be that as it may, they might have shot him for the killings he'd done, but they didn't. And they bound him over to labor in the town's interest until he's paid off the damage and the blood money. Ron, said Farder Coram. I don't know how you feel, but it's my belief they'll never let him have that armor back. The longer they keep him, the more angry he'll be when he gets it. But if we get his armor back, he'll come with us and never bother him again, said Lyra. I promise, Lord Fa. And how are we supposed to do that? I know where it is. There was a silence in which they all three became aware of the witch's demon and his fixed stare at Lyra. All three turned to him, and their own demons too, who had until then affected the extreme politeness of keeping their eyes modestly away from the singular creature, here without his body. You won't be surprised, said the goose, to know that the alethiometer is one of the reasons the witches are interested in you, Lyra. Our consul told us about your visit this morning. I believe it was Dr. Lancelius who told you about the bear. And then... John is hesitant but about getting the bear, and Fardacorum ends up siding with Lyra. And then finally, John Fa's like, alright, fine. We'll take a look at the bear and then decide. I feel like John Fa's like this sometimes, we're gonna see it in a bit. Like, he's a great leader and very action-oriented, and he's very balanced out well mm -hmm. by Fardacorum. But sometimes I think he can be a little bit in, like, Azrael. Like, I think even Lyra says there's similarities and, like, not in all the ways, but, like, during this trip, right, he shows a lot more hesitancy around certain actions that seem inconvenient than he did in the Fens when he was standing up for Lyra. Like, here he's reluctant to help Yorick, 
even though it's the right thing to do, and later on he's going to be a little reluctant to look into, like, the ghost in the village, even though the Aletheonver's, like, telling them, yeah, we gotta do this. This is pretty important. His character is being played by the guy that played Salador's son in Game of Thrones. Oh. And Carter Corum is being played by the guy that played Lord Commander Morma at the Night's Watch, Elsie Mormont. And huh. I imagine them the other way, because I just feel like Elsie Mormont could maybe do a commanding thing, but now I have to imagine him in this role. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So Kaisa begins to tell them how to get to Bulvanger, and Lyra daydreams about a bridge to other worlds, like she's been told, excited about it and also her father, and she dozes off. She awakens in her bunk, and she runs out to find many of the dog teams and whatnot ready to go. Farter Quorum is talking to a Sisselman, a governor, about the bear's armor, and an interesting dude comes up to meet Lyra. Who is it? Who could it be? I don't know. Better read it. She looked at the newcomer with surprise. He was a tall, lean man with a thin black mustache and narrow blue eyes and a perpetual expression of distant and sardonic amusement. She felt strongly about him at once, but she wasn't sure whether it was liking she felt or dislike. His demon was a shabby hair, as thin and tough-looking as he was. He held out his hand and she shook it wearily. Lee Scoresby, he said. The aeronaut! She exclaimed, where's your balloon? Can I go up in it? Oh my god. I'd probably still react like this if I was like, oh my god, the balloon guy! It's a fucking aeronaut with a balloon! You whimsical atheist bitch, Philip Pullman, I love you! (laughs) What a good character, man. Just him, like, I'm Lee Scoresby. You know what I think about with balloons? Do you remember, I was thinking Amanda Bynes' show, Moody's Point. Yeah. There was that Moody's Point, and she got fucking stuck in a balloon. I enjoy it. That was Dawson's Creek knockoff. Yeah, it was. Lee Scoresby has a history with the Yorick, doesn't he? He does. Romantic history. It's not romantic. <laughs> I made that up. Furry. I mean, there's Damon's doing, like, stuff in this... In this story, we didn't put the furry undertones in this. The Egyptians pride themselves in playing cards, and Lee Scoresby is like, let's play cards! But it's actually a distraction. The rabbit, which is Scoresby's demon, named Hester, comes up to a squirrel formed Pan and tells them, go directly to Eoric, where the armor is, or else the town folk are going to move it. Oh no! And so, Lyra, as she does... Then goes to sneak off to go see Yorick. And then she sees him amongst the metal and then feels fear. I love this next part. It's really a culmination of Lyra's whole, why not? Aren't I Azriel's daughter? Until it crashes, obviously. And whether she likes it or not. As he did so, he caught sight of Lyra. She felt a bolt of cold fear strike at her because he was so massive and so alien. She was gazing through the chain link fence about 40 yards from him, and she thought how he could clear the distance in a bound or two and sweep the wire aside like a cobweb, and she almost turned and ran away. But Panalaemon said, Stop! Let me go talk to him! He was a turn, and before she could answer, he'd flown off the fence down to the icy ground beyond it. There was an open gate a little way along, and Lyra could have followed him, but she hung back uneasily. Panalaemon looked at her and then became a badger. She knew what he was doing. Demons could move no more than a few yards from their humans, and if she stood by the fence and he remained a bird, 
he wouldn't get near the bear. So he was going to pull. She felt angry and miserable. His badger claws dug into the earth and he walked forward. It was such a strange, tormenting feeling when your demon was pulling at the link between you. Heart physical pain deep in the chest, part intense, sadness and love. And she knew it was the same for him. Everyone tested it when they were growing up, seeing how far they could pull apart, coming back with intense relief. He tugged a little harder. Don't, Pan! But he didn't stop. The bear watched, motionless. The pain in Lyra's heart grew more and more unbearable, and a sob of longing rose in her throat. Uh, Pan! Then she was through the gate, scrambling over the icy mud toward him, and he turned into a wildcat and sprang up into her arms, and they were clinging together tightly with little shaky sounds of unhappiness coming from them both. I thought you really would! No! I couldn't believe how much it hurt! And then she brushed the tears away angrily and sniffed hard. He nestled in her arms, and she knew she would rather die than let them be parted and face that sadness again. It would send her mad with grief and terror. If she died, they'd still be together, like the scholars in the crypt at Jordan. Then girl and demon looked up at the solitary bear. He had no demon. He was alone. Always alone. She felt such a stir of pity and gentleness for him that she almost reached out to touch his matted pelt and only a sense of courtesy toward those cold, ferocious eyes prevented her. Ugh. No. That's a fucking uh, passage and a fucking half. There's no way we couldn't, like, read that one aloud. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, one of the, it's like the emotional heart, or one of them, right, of this chapter. We're definitely going to come back to this later in our discussion. I have so much to say, but. Oh, yeah. Wow. My heart. I know. And while we're all over here, like, my heart, Yorick's, like, watching all this, and then they show up in front of me, he's just like, well. What's great is when I first read this, I was messaging you, and I was just so upset, and I was like, no, no, is this foreshadowing? No. I was so worried that this would mean that she would have no demon someday. I thought that would be, like, oh, yeah. a thing. And that's, I don't know, I think that's, like, a an optionable theory to have if you haven't read all the series, but... And they keep teasing it as a danger, yeah. right? Yeah. But, you know, for now, Lyra tells Yorick, alright, I'm gonna help you, if you help me. But first she's like, wait, why don't you just make some new fucking armor? Because she's seeing him so easily tearing through and working with a bunch of metal. Because it's worthless. Look. He said, and lifting the engine cover with one paw, he extended a claw on the other hand and ripped through it like a can opener. Ah, my armor is made of sky iron, made for me. A bear's armor is his soul, just as your demon is your soul. You might as well take him away, indicating Pentalimon, and replace him with a doll full of sawdust. That is the difference. Now. Where is my armor? You know, these three chapters have a great foundation, setting up this mid-end of the book, really defining what a soul is and the different types of souls that people could have. And I feel like it's super consistent, even throughout all three of the books, as we'll come to read eventually. But I think the end of this chapter especially ties in with the end of the next chapter. So I'm excited about it, really, truly. Yeah, I, I was thinking that. I think it's absolutely like... What's in a soul? 
they do such a good job of setting it up in the previous one with the witch and then this one here with that pain and then Yorick just now being like, you might as well take him away and replace him with a doll full of sawdust, right? Mm -hmm. It's like not the fucking same, so. So good. Well, well done. Lyra makes Yorick promise to not take revenge. He's like, fine. <laughs> and she tells him that where it is, and then that a priest is trying to exercise his armor because he thinks that there's a spirit in it, which is, you know, wow. adorable, I guess. <laughs> Weird. Very strange. And then Yorick says, I can't go yet. I gave my word to work until sunset. And then Lyra's like, loophole. From where I'm standing, the sun is set. Oh. So, uh, let's go. That's interesting. Yes. Sidebar, because from where Lyra's standing, the sun has already set like a different world, even. Oh. That was just I an like interesting that. turn of phrase he used. I think he did it on purpose. Yeah. Different perspectives. Different worlds. I like that. York tells Lyra he owes her a debt after he learns her real name. He bounds down the street to the cellar of the priest's house, and the sentry tries to fire shots at him, but he fucks up. He misses. And Eorik climbs into the cellar, emerges, terrifying in his now rusted armor, and he's about to like go crazy and flip his shit and rage when Lyra runs over to him and she puts her hand through the gap in his armor. Is like, Eorik, you owe me a debt. You can't fight these people. I also just realized that's the gap in the armor around his heart. Mm-hmm. Lyra's touching Yorick's heart. <sighs> so they go back to the Egyptian camp, and Yorick decides to go skinny dipping now. Mm. Tears off his armor. And Lyra's like, what the fuck is he doing? The villagers now, they're like, here, they're gonna steal his armor back. But of course, our boy, Lee Scoresby, has arrived. He's defending it and chastising the villagers for letting this armor rust. How dare you? And Eorik comes back with a dead seal. And he's like, you with these people? And Lee's like, yeah, sure, I'm with this kid and like her weird friends. And the Sisselman gives Eorik permission to go with these people. And Eorik is like, fuck you. You're not the boss of me. I don't have time for fuckboys. And he finishes oiling his armor and saves the rest of the seal because he's pretty thrifty. And then they leave, and something is following the sleds as they leave, but Lyra still falls asleep. You know, it's a transitional chapter, I think. I mean, she just does this, like, she did this already halfway through this chapter. Is this why I love Lyra so much? Because yep. I'm always falling asleep and taking naps, and she's always falling asleep? I don't know. At the end of this chapter, Pan tries to stay awake, too, with Lyra, but he falls asleep as a mouse curled up in her hood, and- Aww. Before he falls asleep, he senses someone trailing them, swinging branch to branch in the trees. And then the last line is, he feels like he's in the mind of a monkey. Hmm. Is this foreshad- Are they being trailed? Hmm. I think that's interesting. I didn't notice this the first time through. Yeah. I didn't either. I didn't notice this until you said it literally just now. <laughs> I'm like, it's about the monkey, right? Like, why would Pullman yeah. write about the monkey? I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, like, we already have from the previous uh, episodes, like, chapters that the the weird little TikTok bug things, one of them got away and was able to tell Coulter, Mrs. Coulter, like, what was happening and where they were going. So. Mm. Okay. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if someone, like, in the town or something was like, oh, by the way, I don't know, some girl was here. Mm. It wouldn't be surprising. Like, apparently they're all, like kind of paid off by the general appellation board so chapter 12 the lost boy 
So last episode, we talked a lot about William Blake and A Song of Innocence and Experience, the multi, uh, multi-album multi book with poetic lyrics. But this chapter is called The Lost Boy, and we talked about a couple characters as the lost boy and the lost girl in the story. And I think this is a little more subtle, but I still think it fits. Father, father, where are you going? Oh, do not walk so fast. Speak, father, speak to your little boy, or else I shall be lost. The night was dark, no father was there, the child was wet with dew. The mire was deep, and the child did weep, and away the vapor flew. Songs of Innocence by William Blake. The vapor! It flew. So sad. When you tie it into this chapter, what happens? Just mean, Chloe. You're being mean. The last, the last passage, dude. There's oh nothing sadder. Well, no, it does get a little sadder, actually, <laughs> the next few chapters. <laughs> but, like, oh, man, what a twist. Gut, gut wrench. I mean, like, I'm sure you guys have read it because... We're about to finish this chapter, yeah. Yeah, you knew what three chapters we were doing, all right? They travel for hours before stopping to eat, and John Fa asks Lyra to ask the alethiometer about Bolvinger's defense... And Lyra watches it calmly, tells him it's just like Kaiza had said. There are Tartars guarding the station with wires around it, and they don't actually expect to be attacked. But it's telling her something else, too, that there's a village by a lake that's being troubled by a ghost. Hmm. John Fa says that doesn't matter now, and impatiently asks how many men are there. And she's like, there are 60 with rifles, with large guns and cannons, and they got wolf demons. And this causes a stir. And Fa says... Alright, we're gonna have to fight like tigers and consult the bear for this battle. Man, they have no clue what they're up against in Bolvanger. No, they don't. That's what's so rough about this, but Lyra is impatient through all this. She's like, what if this ghost is one of the kids and oh. it's a reminder, right? This is Lyra's mission. Uh, these These men are going off to save these children, but Lyra's goal is to save her friend and find her friend. She's very one-track minded. She's a kid. While all these frivolous things like witches and bears are adding to her story, all these people are tied to this cause for a reason, and so is she. Yeah, I mean, it really gives us a sense of Lyra's justice, because, like, yeah, there's a lot of curiosity behind it, as you said, and that this is, like, her mission, right? She's trying to find her friend. There's also, I think, righteousness in her believing that this is one of the ghosts, and this could be one of the kids, and we have to find them. And I think we see a lot of that righteous indignation on her part, even earlier in the previous chapter, like when she's pleading with the others, like, we have to free Yorick from his slavery. Like, Lyra's not the kind of person who does the right thing because she can do it. She isn't always sure that she can do it, right? But by God, she's going to try. She's going to try to move heaven and earth and hell, like, to try and do the right thing. And of course she strays, right? I mean, Dr. Linsalia said she has to be allowed to stray and make mistakes and she's gonna because like she's what 11 but i think it is very characteristic of lyra that it's so and it's so important to her story and it guides a lot of her actions later on yeah she's i don't want to say the accidental martyr by the end you know what i mean i, I don't know if that's yeah. a good term for it but it's interesting everything she goes through and what she hangs on to as far as like what she believes in yeah she does She does move heaven and earth to try to make things right. And it's weird because you don't understand where she got this moral compass from, right? Like I know. Her dad is Asriel. Her mom is Coulter. And 
the amber spyglass answers a couple of those moments for us deep down of like, okay, this is who she actually is. Because these characters aren't these caricatures of like villainry. They do have some nuance, uh, and we will get into that someday. But first, of course, let's go back to John Fa, who doesn't know what they could do, even if they could do something. And he goes to speak to Lee Scoresby while Lyra goes off to chat with Eoric. And she asks him, how far to the village? He says it's too far for her, but not far for him. Because I'm a bear. <laughs> An armored bear, a pantsier born. Oh. She tells him she understands that Lord Fa is busy, but she has to find out what this is from with her lithiometer, with the ghost child, because she needs to know what the gobblers are really doing. He says he can take her, but he's given his word to Lord Fa that he will only obey Lord Fa. Lyra asks John to allow her to go, saying it's like before with the chameleon that she didn't understand until it was too late. So he has to let her go, obviously, and Carter Coram and John Fa are like, sigh, you're such a little girl. And Lee Scoresby pipes up and he's like, Eorg is loyal and he's strong and he's fast and he'll protect her. This is like not that related to anything, but I just like the language that Lee Scoresby says here because he goes like, as for speed, he can lope for hours without tiring. <laughs> and I just like that they're say describing the way that Yorick moves as loping. Later on, they come back to it like when they start actually going, they're like, and look. Yorick loped, like, quickly, or I don't know. It's like a better I just, Pokemon phrase. It's like, Yorick is loping I, yes. around. It's so good. Lope. Loping. <laughs> That's it. Midwest lope. It was so important to me in that moment to bring that out. Lyra basically promises to behave, and John Fa asks her if the symbol reader is playing a fool on her, and she swears that it isn't. So then John Fa commands him, all right, go, bring back this new knowledge, and then catch up, because we have to keep moving. And as they're going, Lyra tells Yorick, there's actually no need for you to bring your armor. It's going to slow you down, as there aren't any soldiers in the village. So off they go, and then the Aurora <laughs> is over their heads. Lyra wants to talk to Yorick, but she's like, uh... I don't know. And she feels shy for the first time in her life. And then she has to like actively ride him. Yes, she does. Lude. <sighs> Chloe. What? Stop. This is Bear Dad and our little girl. On a non-lewd note, Lyra finds herself having to consider herself for the first time. And it's not going to be the last because, you know, that sense of self-awareness is going to be a big part of this story. <laughs> Especially with like puberty and shit. He tells her to look up at one point at the roarer. Thank you. And the stars are bright as diamonds. There's hundreds of black shapes, though, flying against them. It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's witches flying to war. Yes. York says he's fought for witches before, and that if they're flying to eight enemies, uh, maybe we should all be afraid. But before then, they reach the outside of the village, and Lyra unmounts Yorick. She's freezing cold, and Yorick says, so is this child outside. Hopefully they have shelter. Yeah, but Lyra thinks something different is actually happening here than that. The lithiometer had indicated something uncanny and unnatural, which was alarming. But who was she? Lord Azriel's daughter. And who was under her command? A mighty bear. How could she possibly show any fear? I thought that was so interesting because we know where Azriel is being held. Mm -hmm. he, he's being held and in our minds he's guarded by armor bears and he has to have a lot of strength to pull from right now, right? Yeah. He's being held captive by bears, but now she's like, I got a bear. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. They uh, they go to investigate 
what's going on, and dogs are howling at the activity in the village. Reindeer are moving about nervously at their presence, and the Aurora, thank you, is fading. And Lyra's like, I see pale faces in all the windows. A man comes out suddenly, holding a rival, and his wolverine demon is beside him, and Animal Corner. Wolverines have a lot deeper meanings generally, but in this instance, they can be regarded as brave, ferocious in self-defense, and in dreams, it can be a premonition regarded with evil or negative energy even. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Lyra immediately slips between Yorick and the man who's come out, you know, getting in between them because she told Yorick that he wouldn't need his armor. Oh, Lyra. She like immediately snakes herself between the two. Good girl. Yeah, she is. It says a lot about her character, like you were saying earlier that the level of sacrifice she won't accept from her friends, even though people are being loyal and helpful towards her, she just, she hates that extra burden. It's it's a consistent character trait for her going forward, right? That she does the right thing no matter what. She she at least definitely tries to. Yeah. The man, though, speaks in a different language that turns out Yorick speaks. And Yorick oh. explains, they think that we're devils. <laughs> and Lyra tells him, actually, well, that is actually kind of interesting. Come back bit. to that. Yeah. Lyra tells him that, actually, we're friends. And we're looking for a strange ghost child. And the man points off to the side saying that they, we keep trying to drive it away, but the child keeps coming back. And she's like, that's pretty shitty if it's a kid. The man tells Yorick the child is in the fish house, so off they go. Lyra's pretty fucking nervous, but doesn't want to let Yorick see her fear. He had spoken of mastering his fear. That was what she'd have to do. I love that line. I think it's a really strong bit of the book. It has a lot of Lyra's overarching themes. I just thought we should bring it up. I think that's a good point, and like as we're going to see in a moment, I think part of it has to do with like Lyra allows her compassion to overcome her fear, like her compassion for others, as we've been talking about, is what makes her brave. Yes. Han is being absolutely no help. He's just floating around. She's like, be a bat and go look for me, but he's in his ear mind shape, and he's running around frantically. She's only seen him like this when her and Roger were in the basement with the souls. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Eoric is lying in the snow, and Pan begs Lyra, don't go further. Lyra bravely pushes into the building, asking for the child to come out. An old man comes from the village with a lantern and tells Eoric that it's not the only child of this kind. He's seen them dying in the forest often, and that this one is tough, but dying would be better for him. Uh, so then Lyra asks to borrow the man's lantern and thanks him. And Lyra is like, oh shit, what if it's Roger? She lifted the lantern high and took a step into the shed, and then she saw what it was that the oblation board was doing. What was the nature of the sacrifice children were having to make? The little boy was huddled against the wood-drying rack where hung row upon row of gutted fish, all as stiff as boards. He was clutching a piece of fish to him as Lyra was clutching Panalaman with her left hand hard against her heart but that was all he had a piece of dried fish because he had no demon at all the gobblers had cut it away that was intercision and this was a severed child what an ending ah ah yeah it's it's a good one dude i'm like shivers (sighs) yeah ugh the way this reveal is structured because, I don't know, sorry that we're ending on this part for this episode. It's hard not to stop. 
I think the story from here on out, especially if you're reading it the first time, it's just so good. You, this is where I kept going, <laughs> and you didn't stop from there. No, on. you don't stop. You can't. Once you pop, you don't stop. It's like Pringles. <laughs> It shows, like, I don't know, the fear and that horror because so much of it has been set up in those past few chapters to lead up to this moment, and it all just, like, pays off. You know, Lincellius said that people called it the Maystad process or intercision, right, to avoid having to say what it really is. And I think this speaks to a lot of that power of language because these terms are very clinical in that the people at Bull Vanguard like use them shows that they know what they're doing is horrible, but they're willing to do it anyway. They're just trying to downplay it and remove the feeling from it. And that's why it's pertinent that the way that that last line is structured it goes, this was intercision and this was a severed child because like that language of severed shows that this is in fact violence that's being inflicted upon these children versus those cold clinical terms from the supposedly like more educated or enlightened folk. It's supposed to be disgusting. Yeah. It's supposed to make you feel awful. It's supposed to make you feel like chilled to your bones that this is happening to children. Intercision is happening to children. It's not a, a delightful elevated, like pray to God about it act. Yeah, and and they do a good job of setting this up of like how horrible this is. It wouldn't, I think, work as well if we hadn't seen the disgust on everyone else when they were talking about the witch not having a demon, right? That it was like seeing a body with no head. It was very much these three chapters put together. Yeah, and that's how we know how we're supposed to feel about this moment. And then, I don't know, I feel like there's something going on with the fish here. Maybe it's poetic, maybe it's not, because, like, that boy's demon is not a fish, that's a dead fish. And it, it makes me think of, like, the nature of the people, right, and their demons. And, like, earlier Lyra was pondering that near the water, like, what's a fish, you know, out of water? It's unnatural, it's wrong, it's dead. And that's very much, like, what this child is right now, right? A fish out of water on its way towards death. And, like, yeah. he's clutching the wrong thing to his chest and he's forcing it to be him. And it's kind of that perversion of that earlier idea of what it means to have a demon that you feel discontented with or disconnected with in many yeah. ways. Yet somehow, even though, you know, he's trying to force it, it still is him, but it's not. Uh, it, there's this weird, like, tension going on there. Yeah. And we're going to talk a lot more about who this person is as we get into the next chapter. But I think this means it's time to go into our discussion, Eliana, where oh. we talk about the stuff that Chloe has read. Anything from the Northern Lights slash Golden Compass all the way up to, of course, the Amber Spyglass. I am on the very last chapter. You spoiled I yourself. I'll finish it. I did spoil it mostly, but I still cried like a little wimp. So Yeah, it's it doesn't get any easier. Alright, so the discussion. Let's talk about this line that you have here for us, Chloe. You wanted to come back to? Farter Coram touched the spray of pine, as if for luck, and on his face was an expression Lyra had never seen before. Almost a longing. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's... It's hard because when you know who Serafina Pakala is, and that they had two children together, they just could never be together. They were from separate worlds, Eliana. Yeah. How do you feel about people from separate worlds, Eliana? Well, I feel pretty fucking sad about them, alright? Like Will and Lyra? Yeah. Okay, Okay. you guys, like, did I already tell the story? 
on this podcast of when I finished rereading it. I was fucking devastated because I had not slept in like 24 hours. I was devastated after that, (laughs) after like not getting any sleep. Yeah. So, yep, still devastated. I think it hurts more now. Yeah. I don't know. Imagine being Serafina. Like, and it makes sense, right? When Serafina's all like, I don't know. She has to live forever. Yeah, we're going to come back to that too. Fuck. Yeah, we're we're gonna learn so much more about Serafina, Ugh. especially about Serafina and Fardicorum. And it's interesting because there is a friendship between Serafina and Lee Scoresby, and we're definitely gonna talk about that because it's my favorite thing in the world. But it's sad because everything in this chapter with Fardicorum, you can assume he's saying he and Serafina did together, right? Like when he's like, Oh, I've never fought a bear alone. Yeah. Who do you yeah. think fought that bear with them? I mean, it would make sense for it to be Serafina. I, it, there's a lot of like old friends reuniting. We have it with Lee Scoresby, right, and and Yorick here. But like, it's sad when you don't see them reuniting with Fardacorum and Serafina. This and tying back to like Will and Lyra, it reminds me. There's this description in in chapter twelve of Lyra reading the Alethiometer by the Roarer's Light. <laughs> and it's like the moon itself had long set the light from the aurora was brighter than moonlight but it was inconstant and so a quick aside as lyra becomes more conscious and adult she begins to lose the ability to like read the alethiometer and thinks it's because of the lighting but here we see she's reading it pretty well in fucking shit lighting so <sighs> that's a tip off anyway that description of like the aurora is brighter and described as inconstant sandwiched within like language of the moon I'm probably reading too much into this, and I'm just inspired by, like, Logan Blizzard's tweet about chameleons and Shakespeare earlier, but it does remind me of one of the many iconic lines from Romeo and Juliet during the balcony scene. Mm. And and Juliet goes, Oh, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon that monthly changes in her circle orb, lest that thy love prove likewise variable. And I think Lyra and Will's love, do- it doesn't prove variable, but this language of the inconstant moon aurora with Romeo and Juliet and yeah. Lyra and Will being ill-fated lovers after all. Very star-crossed, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hmm. Different stars entirely. Fuck. <laughs> With the Shakespearean reference of, like, thy love prove likewise variable, there's all these variables. They both have to change, right? And yeah. they both have to, uh, some of them, as they go on in their story, are variables. They can change. And some of these variables cannot change, especially with their ending. And, well, Lyra's going on to find her friend. She goes from having a cause, finding Roger, to losing that drive and actually becoming the cause eventually. Mm. Lyra's super impatient in all of this, right? She's like, what if this ghost is my friend? That's what, that's the mission she's on. This is her mission, like we said, and it's easy to forget that because the Egyptian mission is a bigger overarching mission, right? Saving the children. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people rally around like her and her destiny. And I don't know, so sad about Roger, but like... This chapter absolutely sets up Roger. Yeah, for sure. It does, especially with all of her idolizing Asriel in all these. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I like him. And he's going to make a... And she's super excited about this bridge to the new world. She's like, oh, my ro- my father's brilliant. He's going to do a great job. And then we see like, oh, intercision. And you're like, it's interesting that these things are being introduced so close to each other. Yeah. And, and 
And the old man comes from the village, right, with his lantern. And she's like, let me borrow your lantern. Thank you. And she thinks the whole time, what if that child is Roger? Yeah. Bro, it is. In a bit, yeah. And the worst part is, you know, she leads him to it. Well, and interestingly enough, it's like that three punch, right? Um, It kicks you in the gut. He does a great job building this, that soul talk. And when you get to Amber Spyglass, it makes you that emotional. When Will and Lyra exit the cave, you have it here when mm. she figures out about the intercision. Then you have it when she's almost intersized. And then when she has to part to go to the underworld with Pan. Yeah. And and it's interesting because the language there is all like, she thinks to herself she would never, ever part from Pan and never do that again. Mm-hmm. Oh. Then she fucking does. <laughs> she that's has awful. to. And I mean, that's the thing. Lyra's not just about inconveniencing other people, right? Like, John Faw and Farger right. Parm are like, this is pretty fucking inconvenient for us. <laughs> and she's, like, out here doing what's probably the most inconvenient fucking thing ever. Very, very painful thing. And she's taking it upon herself. She, like, yeah. could die down there. <laughs> she coulda. <laughs> and, like, completely failed at everything. Which, like... During that time, it's very interesting because she tells Will, she's like, I think this is what I'm meant to do. Because turns out it's funny in this chapter when she's like itching to ask Kaisa a question. She's like, why do the witches talk about me? And that's a tip off that like Lyra was eavesdropping on the conversation Farter Coram and Linsullius were having. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Because she tells Will, she's like, yeah, I overheard them. I was, it turns out I was, I was spying as I do. And like as a last thing, I I think it's interesting coming back to that part with Lyra and Pan. You know, she thinks that in death, you know, a they're never gonna part again, and b she's like, even if we had died out of grief, like we would be together, like the scholars of Jordan and their demons were in death. But then we see later on in the Amber Spyglass, uh, wait, that's a lie. That's not what fucking happens because for a long ass time until Lyra came along. The dead were actually apart from their demons. And like that's part of Lyra going into the underworld where all the dead must eventually go must eventually go. It's like that cruel blow when they leave their demons behind instead of like the relief of unification. They're like, fuck, what is this place? This place sucks. And like I never circled back to this in earlier episodes. Um I'd called out it was kind of strange that in the version of books that I have, there's a scholar who has a demon that has a human form and it's like a woman and i asked about this actually on the his dark materials subreddit and they're like oh that was just a mistake and removed in later versions which is why it wasn't in another version that i was looking at and i have this headcanon though that maybe like this is totally a tinfoil and a headcanon that that guy maybe was like from another world also and rather than it being his demon that was like his death as we see in one of the worlds in the Amber Spyglass, people like run around with their deaths kind of close to him. I don't know. As far as death goes, I feel like there's so many omens of it, especially when you get to the literal ferryman of death as we get into uh, Ooh, yeah. Amber Spyglass. You know, like that was a straight up like, oh, the ferryman of death come to take you to your fate. So I feel like there's a lot of stuff there, but... I'm excited to get into that stuff eventually. It's so far off. It's like so months. And you're like, fuck it, we're going to talk about it now. Well, yeah, it, yeah. It's especially in all the talk we had in this episode of her separating from Pan, right? We didn't 
we didn't talk talk about it at depth, but there is a moment where Lyra has to say good boy to good boy. Say goodbye. <laughs> good boy. Pan is say a good boy. Say goodbye to that part of her, right? Yeah, Pan, that good boy, goodbye, that part. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. There's also other things we do you want to talk about regarding Lee and Yorick and other characters, but we're going to come back to those later on. We got to leave, got to leave you guys hanging. Got to leave some other content for other episodes. Yeah. This discussion was definitely shorter than uh, the past couple. And I think that's good. I think that means that we're rolling along with the punches and we'll be back soon for our discussion to be nice and thick with two C's. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) is it like Dumbo? Thick. I I don't know. So the next episode we're going to be doing is episode five of His Dark Materials. We're going to be covering more chapters in Bullvanger. It'll be 13, 14, and 15. It will. And of course, as we said earlier on, you know, we do have a Patreon episode coming out this month that is about A Song of Ice and Fire. But next month, we are looking to do something a little more dark and materialistic. <laughs> okay, Madonna, we'll talk about that way more later. That uh, will be available next month eventually at patreon.com slash girls gone canon. Stay tuned for some fun bits of that. And if you want to keep up with when those new bits come out, be sure to subscribe to us on social media. You can find us at girls gone canon on Twitter. But maybe you want to, I don't know, send us your episode of Girls Gone Canon or anything else. You can find us at girls gone canon at gmail.com. Maybe you'll be the next last minute email right before the episode that lights up my life. Make sure that you have subscribed to us on your podcast app of choice, whether it's Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, oh, Stitcher, Acast, Overcast, Podbean, any of those. Check it out. Give it a Google. You'll find us. We are on there. All right, everyone. Well, see you around. I think our next episode for His Dark Materials should be sometime early October. Yes, absolutely. So stay tuned for that. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks, guys. Goodbye.